Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. In the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. The officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nargal Sharazar of Samgar, Nebo Sarsakam, a chief officer, and all the other officials of Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 1-3, through 3, New International Version. Hello, and welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. This is the sixth episode in our series, Archaeology and the Bible. At Anchored by Truth, we think most people understand that archaeology is generally relevant to the study of the Bible, but they have a limited understanding of what the relationship is. But if we take the Bible seriously, which we definitely do at Anchored by Truth, we all need to know a little bit about archaeology. That's because archaeologic expeditions and finds have supplied an abundance of evidence that confirms that the history contained in the Bible is real history. That's why we decided to do this series. Despite the fact that popular culture has tried to dismiss the long-standing relationship between the Bible and archaeology, the truth is that archaeology as a whole has done much to provide evidence of the Bible's trustworthiness. To help us continue to explore this topic, in the studio today we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., throughout this series you have pointed out that despite the skepticism we often hear, many scholars, including the ones who aren't Christian, have used the Bible as a source document when planning or conducting archaeological explorations. In fact, the Bible's history has regularly been shown to be accurate even when doubted, right? Right. And I'd also like to welcome everybody to this episode of Anchored by Truth. Always like to say hi to everybody. Hope everyone is doing well. We especially hope that you are closely connected with your Bible. The whole purpose of Anchored by Truth is to help people understand that they can have confidence that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God, and people can trust it. And that's what we're trying to do on Anchored by Truth, is help people understand that. And in our most recent episodes of Anchored by Truth, what we've been doing to help our listeners have more confidence in the Bible is by covering several specific examples of times when secular history doubted what the Bible was reporting, but archaeology then proved that the Bible was right. And today we're going to continue in that same vein, and we're going to provide another example of an archaeological find that shows that not only does the Bible get the big things right, but the Bible is also accurate in details, details that most people wouldn't even consider to be significant. Well, perhaps we should start by briefly discussing one of the specific criticisms that is frequently hurled at the Bible, the idea that many of the books of the Bible aren't actually written by the person whose name is associated with that particular book. This would include books like Daniel and Jeremiah, but it extends to the first five books of the Bible which are historically attributed to Moses. 
One line of evidence that the Bible is the inspired Word of God is that the Bible contains a large body of fulfilled prophecy. And we've provided a lot of examples of successful fulfilled prophecies in many of our Anchored by Truth series. We've talked about the fact that the prophet Isaiah provided the name of a Persian king who would conquer the Babylonian Empire 200 years before that event happened in history. For anyone who wants to verify that prophecy for themselves, they can go to chapters 44 and 45 of the book of Isaiah. For example, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1 through 3 say, quote, This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened, never to shut again. This is what the Lord says. I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the mountains. I will smash down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron, and I will give you treasures hidden in the darkest secret riches. I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, and the one who calls you by name, Yes, and so a simple internet search of the question, Who conquered Babylon? will bring up the name Cyrus, or he's sometimes called Cyrus the Great. Now, Isaiah is the first of the so-called major prophets, and Isaiah prophesied during the years of about 740 B.C. to about 700 B.C. He had a prophetic career that lasted about four decades. So, the latest that Isaiah would have prophesied about a coming conquering king who was named Cyrus is about 700 B.C., But Babylon didn't fall to Cyrus until 539 B.C. So Isaiah's prophecy predates its fulfillment by at least 170 years, maybe close to 200 years. And since we can't successfully predict who will win the next election, Super Bowl, or World Series, a successful prophecy given 200 years before the event is pretty compelling evidence of supernatural inspiration and insight. Right. And another example of successful prophecy that was given hundreds of years ahead of the time that the fulfillment occurred is found in the book of Daniel, who is the last of the major prophets. Now, in chapters 2, 7, and 8 of Daniel's book, Daniel prophesied about a series of empires that would control what was, for the ancient Hebrews, the known world. Now, to us, the part of the world that was of interest to Daniel and the Hebrews of that time was essentially Eastern Europe, North Africa, the Mideast, and Western Asia. And Daniel prophesied that a series of four empires would dominate that territory. Well, we now know from history that those empires were the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Well, Rome conquered Palestine and Jerusalem around 63 B.C., but Daniel had given his prophecies about these coming four empires, the final one of which would have been Rome, around 540 B.C. So Daniel had given a prophecy about this series of four empires, the final one of which would have been the Roman Empire, but his prophecy would be almost 500 years in fulfillment. Again. None of us know what the price of gas will be next month, much less next year. We don't know what the level of the stock market will be in a year. We can't even be sure what the weather will be like two days from now. So for a human, unaided by God, to successfully predict a major military and political event 500 years in the future is simply impossible. But what is impossible for people 
is possible for God. But it is possible only for God. That's one of the big reasons we could be sure the Bible was inspired by God. God inspired his writers to record things hundreds of years before they would happen. And that then becomes strong evidence that while a human hand pushed a pen or stylus, the information was coming straight from a divine being. Yes. So those are just two examples of hundreds that could be cited to illustrate that the Bible writers were given supernatural inspiration by God Almighty. And you know, this evidence is so clear and compelling that the critics of the Bible have to find a way to discount the evidence. So the most common way that the critics try to discount the evidence is to assert that the books of the Bible weren't written when conservative Orthodox scholarship tells us that they were, when the books claim that they were. So to discredit the prophecy, the critics try to turn the prophecies into history. For instance, the critics will claim that the book of Daniel was not written in the 6th century B.C., but rather it was written in the 1st or 2nd century B.C. And the critics will claim that while portions of the book of Isaiah might have been written as early as the 8th century B.C., they will claim that other parts of the book were written much later, such as the 5th or even the 4th century B.C. By doing so, the critics claim that rather than the books containing successfully fulfilled prophecies, all the books were really doing was just presenting historical events as if they were prophecy. That calls to mind the medieval notion that it was possible to turn iron into gold. It was called alchemy. But in this case, the critics want to turn the golden evidence of fulfilled prophecy into the common element of recent history, a sort of reverse alchemy. The critics can plainly see the implications of a book that contains prophecies given hundreds of years before the events prophesied. Human beings can't do that. Only God could. So, to get rid of the evidence, they turn the evidence into something else. Redate the book, and poof, prophecy becomes history. Yes. So, that's probably the most common form of criticism that's hurled against the body of prophecy that the Bible contains. The critics simply claim that the Bible was not written when the Bible says that it was written. And that's a very pernicious form of criticism because the critic in doing so isn't denying the content of the book. He's just claiming that the book can't mean what we believe it means because it's been misdated. But one of the ways the Bible defends itself against such criticism is that it frequently contains language or details that wouldn't have been used or known to the later writer. And that detail or language has now been confirmed by archaeology. For instance, with respect to the false assertion that the book of Daniel was written in the 1st or 2nd century B.C., biblical scholar Dr. Gleason Archer in his Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties has written this, quote, it seems that a 2nd century date for the Hebrew chapters of Daniel is no longer tenable on linguistic grounds. In view of the markedly later development of the areas of syntax, word order, morphology, vocabulary, spelling, and word use, there is absolutely no possibility of regarding Daniel as contemporary with the sectarian documents of the 2nd century B.C. The complete absence of Greek loan words, apart from musical instruments, point unmistakably to a time of composition prior to the Alexandrian conquest, unquote. So what Dr. Archer is saying is that, just like today, language changes through time. I mean, for instance, 
We no longer use phrases like daddy-o or 23 skidoo. 23 skidoo? Really? Really. 23 skidoo was an American slang phrase that appeared early in the 20th century. And it was sort of used to mean I'm leaving quickly. Now, according to the Wikipedia entry on 23 skidoo, 23 skidoo was actually the conjoining of two earlier expressions, one, 23, and the second was skidoo. Well, both of those earlier phrases meant independently and separately, they referred to someone leaving or being kicked out or the end of something. And so in the early part of the 20th century, the phrase 23 skidoo came into being. And that shows you that language changes. Words are added together. Words are separated. Phrases are created. Phrases come into vogue. Phrases go out of vogue. The phrase 23 skidoo, that's slang from over a hundred years ago. So if we saw the phrase 23 skidoo in a document, we could have a pretty high degree of confidence that that document did not come from the 21st century. We could have a pretty good idea that that document was probably prepared sometime in the very early part of the 20th century. And the same thing that's true about our language is true about ancient languages. They change through time. So in the case of the language that was used in the book of Daniel, it does not resemble the language that were used by the Jews in the 1st or 2nd century B.C. And one of the reasons we can have high confidence about that is because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The point is that the language of the book of Daniel defeats the critics' attempts to date it at a time when its prophecy would have become history. And today we're going to cite an example where a name in the text of the book of Jeremiah defeats the critics' attempt to turn its successful prophecies into history. Remember, our opening scripture came from the book of Jeremiah. Exactly. So let's set the stage for what we know is going on both in scripture in the book of Jeremiah and in history. Jeremiah is the second of the major prophets. Jeremiah wrote during a period starting in 626 B.C. and lasting until about 586 B.C. He is sometimes called the weeping prophet because he had the sad task of warning the people in Judah and Jerusalem that they were going to be destroyed by the Babylonians because of their idolatry. Jeremiah did not want to see them destroyed, but he faithfully reported that because the people would not give up their idolatry, they were going to suffer. He made a number of famous prophecies. He not only prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, but he also prophesied that the captivity of the exiled Jews was going to last 70 years. And Jeremiah was proven accurate on both counts. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most famous of the Babylonian kings, finally destroyed Jerusalem in about 587 B.C., and he sent most of the people from Jerusalem and Israel into exile around Babylon. And only the very poorest of the people were permitted to remain in their homeland. And Jeremiah was also right about how long the Jews would remain in exile. Now, the first time that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem was much earlier than 587 B.C. It was pretty close to 600 or 597 B.C. But even before that, Judah and Jerusalem had become a vassal state of Babylon. Many scholars date the start of the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied to around 605 B.C. when the kingdom of Judah first swore allegiance to Babylon. Well, Cyrus defeated Babylon in 539 B.C., 
So that's a period close to 70 years later, but it actually took a little while before the exiled Jews were able to return to their homeland. They didn't just like flip a switch and all jump on a plane and go back to Israel. It took a while for them to be given the permission to return to their homeland before they were able to get their expedition together and actually return. So all told, the exile of the Jews in Babylon lasted right around 70 years. But a skeptic might say that those two prophecies were not really prophetic. Nebuchadnezzar began his control of Judah during Jeremiah's lifetime, so the prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar would one day destroy Jerusalem might have just been an educated guess. Or a skeptic might assert that the writer of Jeremiah just wrote about the destruction of Jerusalem after it happened. While the book of Jeremiah does contain information about when various prophecies were given, it's not impossible that the writer might have deliberately misstated the material to appear prophetic, even if it were not. But that would still leave a successful prophecy about the length of the period of the exile. You know, chronologically, the book of Jeremiah ends right after the final destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. But Cyrus still would not defeat the kingdom of Babylon for almost another 50 years. So even if a critic asserts that the writer of Jeremiah was writing history when it came to the fall of Jerusalem, the writer would have had no way of knowing if or when the period of Babylonian captivity would end. So, to get around the possibility, the critic would say that a later editor of the book of Jeremiah just added that detail after the period of exile ended. That, in fact, is a common line of criticism with respect to many of the books in the Old Testament. Many critics assert that many books of the Old Testament, including the first five books, were not written until after the period of the Babylonian captivity and the Jews had returned to their homeland, sometime in the late 6th century BC or early mid-5th century. This assertion is that the returned Jews were trying to create a sort of noble history for themselves because the whole nation was in such desperate condition. The critics assert that the returned Jews either just outright fabricated books such as Genesis at that time, or they took earlier works and just added a bunch of details to give them the appearance of supernatural inspiration. And one way they supposedly did that was to put prophecies in the books that were really historical events that had affected the Israelites. The idea is that by doing so, the national or religious authorities could fool the population into believing their holy books contained prophecies that had been fulfilled. The general idea is that these pious fictions would have inspired the Jews, who were then in a pretty sad state at that time. And so that's where our opening scripture today becomes relevant. Our opening scripture includes the names of two Babylonian officials who were present at the time the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. It contains the names Nergal Sharezar of Samgar and Nebo Sarsikim. Now, Nebo Sarsikim in particular is described as being a, quote, chief officer. Okay, let's focus on what's going on within the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been warning the people, probably for decades at this time, that if they don't give up their idolatry, they are going to be punished by being defeated militarily. And Jeremiah even tells them that that defeat will come at the hands of the Babylonians. But the people don't listen, and the defeat comes about. So, Jeremiah is now describing what was happening at the time that the Babylonians broke through the walls of Jerusalem. Right. 
Now, what is interesting, even amazing, about this passage from Jeremiah is that Jeremiah, or the writer of the book of Jeremiah, has gone to the trouble of recording the names of Babylonian officials who weren't the king, or even part of the royal family. Now, it's of course not unusual for a careful and honest historian to record the names of important people who were present at a significant event, like the breaching of the walls of your capital city. A careful historian might do that. But why would someone who is making up or editing a book decades after this fact include the names of minor officials as they were doing their, in effect, pious fiction? I suppose someone would say that adding the names of officials would increase the level of credibility to the account they were concocting. Good fiction writers always want to make their fiction believable. Well, someone, a critic, who was trying to cast doubt on the book might say that, but let's explore that idea for just a second. Let's suppose that a religious authority in Israel, after the Israelites have returned back to their homeland, is somehow trying to add weight to a book that they're creating. So, to add weight to that book, they start throwing in a bunch of stray details about a dramatic event like the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem. It doesn't make much sense that one of the details they would throw in would be a couple of names from an invading army who just somehow sat down in a city gate after they had breached the wall. But even if that person did decide to throw in a couple of names, how would a writer who was writing decades after the actual event know which names to toss in? Remember, the idea that we're examining is whether it is reasonable to suppose that the book of Jeremiah was written decades after the event that it records, because that's what it would take a later writer to have done in order for them to know the length of the Babylonian captivity. Or, it is just more reasonable to conclude that the book of Jeremiah was written by an eyewitness of the events recorded in the book. An eyewitness could easily know the names of high-ranking officials who took part in the capture of the capital city. But details get lost as time passes by. So the likelihood that a later religious figure would know which lesser officials happened to be present when Jerusalem fell starts to strain credulity. Which possibility is more likely really comes down to whether the names recorded in Jeremiah are accurate. And, thanks to archaeology, we now have solid evidence that the writer of the book of Jeremiah got the names right. There's a clay tablet in the British Museum that contains a receipt that was issued by a high official of Nebuchadnezzar. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon who conquered Jerusalem. Now, this tablet is a receipt for gold that was donated to the temple in Babylon. And the full translation of the tablet reads, regarding 1.5 minas, which would be about two-thirds of a kilogram, of gold, the property of Nabusharusu Ukin, the chief eunuch, which he sent via Arad Banitu, the eunuch, to the temple Esangila. Aru Banitu has delivered it to Esangila, in the presence of Bel Usat, son of Alpaya, the royal bodyguard, and of Nadin, son of Marduk Zeribni. Month 11, day 18, year 10 of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, this tablet that's in the British Museum is dated to the 10th year of Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon, dated to about 595 BC, or about eight years before the siege of Jerusalem. 
Now, many biblical scholars, when they read the tablet, they've now realized that the name mentioned in this tablet is the same as the name that's contained in our extract from Jeremiah chapter 39. And that's pretty remarkable. As we've said frequently during this series, one test for whether a historical record is accurate is whether the record gets the names and titles right. And it is one thing for a writer to get the big names right, but it is even better when the writer gets the names of lesser officials right. Everyone remembers Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, but how many people would know who was on their staff? How many would remember the people who were, in essence, just supporting actors? Yet over and over again, we find that from the Bible, the Bible writers get even the small details right. In this case, the Bible describes Nebuchadnezzar as being a, quote, chief officer of the king of Babylon. And the tablet from the British Museum tells us that that person, Nebuchadnezzar, was the chief eunuch. Now, the title chief eunuch doesn't mean much in our day and age, and thankfully we've done away with the idea of eunuchs, but the chief eunuch in that day and age would have been a very important Babylonian official. And it would take too much time today to describe why that was true, but we can get some idea of that person's importance and wealth by noting that the tablet, the receipt that's in the British Museum, indicates that that person gave gold to the temple that was worth over $50,000 in today's money. And how many people today can afford to give away $50,000? It's little wonder that someone kept a receipt of the donation. And by the grace of God, we now have that receipt as additional evidence that the book of Jeremiah wasn't written hundreds of years or even decades after the events it records. An eyewitness of the events could record details accurately. A writer at a far distant time wouldn't have reason to include the names of lesser officials. By that time, the relevance and value of such people would have faded into the distant past. Right. Now, the book of Jeremiah contains lessons that would have been very important to the people of his day. I mean, that's why God originally inspired him to write, to give his warnings, to give his prophecy. But the lessons that Jeremiah gave, they're just as relevant for us today. Jeremiah warned his people, the people of his day, about the dangers of idolatry. Well, an idol is anything that we value more than God. And lots and lots of us have things that we value more than our relationship with God. Jeremiah was a genuine prophet of God, and we can be sure of that because the prophecies that he gave to his people that he passed along from God came true. Well, today we've only mentioned a couple of those. There are a lot more in the book of Jeremiah, and I would encourage people to go and get the book of Jeremiah and read it. But we just don't have time in these brief episodes to discuss the huge number of prophecies that are just contained in the book of Jeremiah. But our purpose at Anchored by Truth is to help people understand that the Bible is the inspired and errant and infallible Word of God. Archaeological finds, like the tablet that we've talked today, point out that fact. This sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our children who are in school, and many of them facing tests. Prayer Before Taking a Test Heavenly Father, you have been so good and kind to me. I praise your name because you are worthy to be praised. You rule the universe, yet you love us so much that you care about the parts of even our daily lives that trouble us. Thank you for being a merciful Father who carries our burdens. 
Lord, you know I have a test coming that has been weighing on my heart. I know that tests are a part of learning and education. You know so well that tests can be very difficult for some of your children, including me. Lord, I pray that you would help me with this test. I pray you would help me to prepare effectively for the test. Help me to take advantage of all the books, study aids, and guides that I can find. Direct me to my fellow students, teachers, or friends who have an understanding in this area and who can assist me. Please defeat any tendencies I have towards discouragement or fear because these are the tools of the enemy. When I am in the test, please send the Holy Spirit to bring to my mind all that I have learned. Keep me calm and help me to focus on simply doing my best. My joy and hope are in Jesus. I pray and give thanks in His precious name. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S, Thank you for your support.